This is the Zen's podcast on science, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Zen Rong Yap, and it's my pleasure to introduce my guest today, Dr. Scott Roberts. He's a materials technologist at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the Materials Development and Manufacturing Technology Group, taking up the role after completing a PhD in material science at the California Institute of Technology. He develops new materials, processing techniques, and technologies for use in the aerospace field. He is as close to an inventor as it gets. He is one of the most brilliant people I've met at JPL, working very well with the rest of our group and having lots of success with bulk metallic glass and porous metal 3D printing. He has been one of my mentors this summer during my internship at JPL too. He's been very generous with his time talking about his experiences through his education, his research and in grad school and at JPL and also how to make the most of your life. I'm very glad he's here today. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Hey Zen, thanks for having me on. It's it's. Great to hear that you enjoyed my my companionship this summer, and it was <laughs> great great having a really receptive student who didn't seem to get bored at, of me being old man Scott on him. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. So you have some cats, and I'd love to hear about how they're doing. <laughs> yeah, so I, I have my wife and I have four cats now. We had we've had two we've had for about eight years. We got we rescued them when they were about three or four years old, Sandy and Lily. They're wonderful little ladies. And then about a year ago, we were out getting some food. And this little eight week old black cat stared into my wife's soul and we had to bring her and her sister home. So we now have a pair of little si of sisters, Nibbler and Waddles, both black cats and they're wonderfully friendly and scared the crap out of the older ones because they had enjoyed having the run of the house themselves. But it's been really exciting because the last uh, two weeks or so, they're all finally getting along together. We did the really slow introductions and everything, but like they're playing, they're chasing each other around the house. Everyone likes each other's company. It's, it's awesome. They're sitting, everyone's sitting with us on the couch again. Like it's like a happy family again. So this is what a breakthrough. It's so great when all your pets get along. So very happy. Oh yeah. This is, it sounds, it sounds really nice. Have you had cats for a long time? So, so I grew up with, we had a cat Oscar. He was, he was actually found by our school's librarian. He lived under a tractor for two years. He had like no teeth by the time we got him. And he was the friendliest cat you've ever met in your life. He was fat, he had no teeth, but he just, he knew he had the good life. And we had him from when, about when I was in kindergarten through I think seventh or eighth grade was when he passed away. And we had dogs when I got a little older, but then been work, I worked on my wife for about six years. She grew up without pets, but I slowly convinced her that, hey, you know, and animals make your life better. Animals make your life better. <laughs> we both had an absolutely abysmal week at work. The whole week was awful. We, you know, we were tired. We went to our favorite restaurant where they, you know, they know us my first name and they still screwed up both of our dinners and our favorite Mexican joint. And it's like, we're just so depressed. So we're like walking around, just trying to find something to cheer us up. And there was a store that had like dog washing where you could go in and like rent a, a sink to wash your pet. Mm -hmm. And, um, we're like, let's just go watch, watch some people wash some cute dogs. Cause that'll be fun. We go in there. Nobody's there washing their dog. So we go over. I'm like, I want to look at the cats. Cause they have, they have like a little adoption area from, from a local shelter. And I'm staying there looking at the cats and this dude walks by. He's like, do you guys need to like pet a cat? I'm like, yeah, but, you know, the, it's after, it's after hours. Like it says they're closed. He's like, no, no, don't worry about it. Like you guys look like you really look like you could, you could use petting an animal right now. Like you look like you've had a really tough day. And so he asked which one we wanted to see. And my wife pointed at Sandy and said, we like her and went into the room. And within about five minutes, she was sold. And so that was, I want to say around 2013, 2014. I forget when I'm 
uh, mm-hmm. that parent. Um, <laughs> and we adopted her. She was a couple of years old. And then I also said, you know, hey, you know, I don't want you to just pick out the first cat you touch. You know, let's make sure you like it. Another one. So I've always wanted a gray cat. So we looked at her neighbor in the neighboring cell, Lily, uh, who's white and gray. And Sonda went, she stole my heart too. I, I want them both. I was like, all right, cool. I guess we get two. And so we had those two for a really long time. And, and, uh, you know, they were super lovey dovey with us. And yeah, we've had them, I guess, at least eight years now. And the other two, we got the day before Halloween with black cats, which was nice because you never know what'll happen to a, a black cat on Halloween. Yeah. And they've been a wonderful addition to the family. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's highly recommend anyone out there. No stigma against cat people anymore. Best thing that came out of COVID is people get cats are wonderful animals. Yeah. Eight years. That's, that's as long as you've been in JPL, right? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Ju- ju- just about actually. Yeah. So yeah, never thought, never thought about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we actually got them like, like, yeah, I think we got them about three months after I started at JPL. Ah, okay. What is it like to work at JPL? And I'm, I guess the cats have made it better as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, JPL is, is a really awesome place to work. I, I think it's a, it's a unique place in the world. You know, there's, there's a lot of places with incredibly intelligent people. There's a lot of places with incredibly intelligent people in the space industry. And, you know, there are different places that focus on formulation, you know, science return, you know, mission design, technology research, actually developing a, you know, a flight system, launching it, doing all that stuff. And JPL is really the only place in the world where we have expertise in everything. I'll say actually the only thing JPL doesn't do is the actual rockets themselves, um, which right now I think is actually a really great place to be because there's so many companies doing awesome rocketry work that it's a wonderful time to be making payloads. And so I've been involved on on GPL's missions. You know, I've I've had stuff where we've been looking at a mission concept that was 50 years away from launching, and trying to figure out well what are the technologies we need to develop over the next 30 to 40 years so that we could have a good proposal ready for this. And I've worked on stuff with, with, with science return where it's, you know, it's, it's late mission stage and seeing what's the last little remnants we can pull out of this. So being able to work like cradle to grave on, on a science mission is, is super exciting. And that's honestly one of the biggest things I love about the lab is that it's difficult to get bored. There's always something new to do. There's always some new expert in some esoteric subfield you've never even heard of that, you know, you, you never get to walk into a meeting and be the smartest person on everything. You know, it, you're lucky if you're the smartest person on one thing. Yeah. And, and even when I, even when I run a meeting where I'll have like six interns with me, you know, I, I get interns from all different backgrounds. And so they're also experts in things that, that I don't know, you know, I've, I've got a PhD. I've been doing what I do for a long time, but I don't know a lot about the stuff that I work on. I'm, I'm a technical expert, you know, I'm, I'm very, very deep, but it's kind of narrow. And so, you know, upper level undergraduate or, or definitely graduate students have, have much deeper knowledge in their fields, you know, and in their domains than I do. And so, you know, you don't have to be like, you know, 65 years old and like world leader expert to be the smartest in a room, you know, you, you can very rapidly become that on with how specialized and how unique the technologies are that go on in this world. And that's, that's something I just love about being a JPL is there's just so much cool, different stuff that goes on. Yeah. Well, what's the most esoteric thing you have heard of at JPL? I'll say one of the meetings I'll never forget. 
I don't know if this is necessarily most esoteric, but I was in a meeting with, we were looking at comet simulants. So if you're going to make a system that's going to go in and sample a comet to then return it to earth, you need to have a guess of like, what is that terrain going to feel like? And based off what it's going to feel like, you know, if, if I'm doing loosely packed snow, I'm going to need a different sampler than if I have concrete. And so they were trying to figure out like, how do we better bound? What are the properties of, um, of a comet? And then not only how do we bound those, those properties, but how do we actually make simulants for those? So we can go in lab and actually test these things that we're building. And so we're like, okay, cool. Like that sounds like a really fun project. You know, we we're material scientists. Like this is kind of what we get to do is, is work with materials. So what are your guys' ranges of properties of the surface? Like, what do you guys expect? Like, is it narrow? And they're like, well, we know it's somewhere between like the most powdery snow you've ever felt and the hardest concrete that can be made. Yeah, so we need to make something. Yeah, we need to make something in there. And you're just like, okay, like, congratulations. Good job on giving me the bounding box of everything. But then, like, they, like, pull out this stack of, like, 20 papers where people are actually doing, like, you know, computational chemistry calculations and materials property predictions. And it's like, oh, no, like, there's actually mechanistically, here's the ways that you could actually form each one of these. This isn't just, like, we made these numbers up, which is, you know, if you were to ask me to make up numbers, that would be the same box I would give you. But they, this was like been rigorously done over the last few decades of like, no, we, we legitimately have models for how we could form a super soft snow or a super hard ice. And we just don't know enough to say which one it's going to be today. And so that's why, like, when you look at, you know, missions for when they have these scoopers or these, you look and you're like, well, why did they do that? Like, that seems silly. Look at the ground. Like it's, it's obviously this form. Well, yes, it's obvious now that we've landed on it and we've scooped it and we've looked at it. But when you're based off of, you know, your, your only pictures are from a million kilometers away and they were done like 1982, you know, there's only so much you can do. And so we have to try and guess like, where is this going to land and how do we make something that, you know, it's, it's never really going to be optimal for one thing, but it should be passable for everything. And so this comes up a lot in, in all sorts of missions, you know, not just GPL, but, you know, whenever you're dealing with large unknowns, you know, hindsight is 2020, you know, you look back and like, oh, that was a terrible decision. You could have done this much simpler mechanism to do this. It's like, yes, well, that's, it's part of science as we, we revise what we learn and we can do it better the next time. And hopefully make our engineering easier and we can lightweight it and we can do more with like the same size and mass and all the sort of stuff that gets in there. So, so how does our group with materials, what, what do we do and how can, how did we help with that? Yeah. So, so our group is, we're kind of like internal consultants where we work with other engineers and scientists and technologists on lab to try and help make their systems better. So material science as a field is really about getting rid of compromises. You know, it's, it's not hard to make a really, really, really strong material. That's actually a pretty easy thing to do. It's also not very hard to make a very, very, very ductile material, right? You could just go use like gold or something. You can make that like an atom thick. What's really difficult is making something that's ultra strong and ultra ductile, right? That's the problem. And that's what material science to me has always been about is saying, well, I want A and B. And, you know, the, the, the rules of thumb say, well, you get a or B. And so the, 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 the R and D and the, the stuff that our group does is saying, well, let's figure out how we get both. And so we work with teams, whether it's creating new materials, 
using manufacturing processes. I do a lot of work with like thermal management devices where, you know, traditionally you, you trade complexity for, for, for performance. So if you want better performance, you need a more complex system. And what I say is, well, no, I want better performance with a less complex system. How can I go back to the drawing board and create a new system that's simpler, you know, without, a, while being totally passive? Like that's actually one of my big things I love is if I can, because most of our environments are relatively static or they're very well-defined, finding like these elegant passive solutions where you don't need a computer controlled, you don't need feedback systems, you know, you don't have to do all that. You do the engineering up front and then it just works. Like that's, that's, an, that's like, you know, the ideal to me for, for creating a system for spacecraft is, is you just have something where you don't have to be smart about it. If your computer crashes and like your, your system's rebooting for three days or something, like it doesn't matter because our thermal system will self-regulate and take care of itself. And, and that's a large yeah. part of what we do is, is, you know, people will say, well, I need a material that does this and, you know, can anyone make me like, I need something that's thinner than aluminum foil, but it's ultra tough. Cause like, you know, you look at aluminum foil, you look at it wrong and it crinkles and it tears, you know, does anyone know a material that exists that doesn't? It's like, oh yeah, actually that's actually what my PhD was on was on metallic glasses, developing those sorts of alloys. Like, yay, we finally found a use for it. But that, that is a large part of what we do is, is we just work with other engineers. There's not really like, you know, a direct material science product that goes into NASA missions for, for where we work. We're not doing like the high temperature alloys or you know, the ablative shields or something that goes on in some other NASA centers. We're kind of focused on partnering with other people and making their systems work better. So one of my group mates, Samat Ferdozi, did a really cool project with 3D printing a, a underwater volcanic system type thing. So they they wanted to go, the uh, a lot of NASA and JPL technology actually gets used for under ocean exploration. Cause it's actually very similar to space exploration, just the pressure's reversed, but you still have the same problem a lot with, with mass and volume and power and all these sorts of things we have to deal with. Same issue underwater. So looking at like underwater volcanic vents is a really interesting problem. There's a lot of really cool biology and chemistry and geology and other science that goes on there. And it's a good way to kind of proof out technologies that we want to use for space. But again, like going back to that comet example, uh, undersea vents can actually be pretty difficult to get to. So if you want to, you want to do testing, you want to do it in the lab, you don't want to have to go down hundreds, thousands of feet. So how do you create like a, a fake vent? And so they actually had a project where they were using additive manufacturing to create like, you know, before you had the choice, you were either going to meet, match the properties of the vent. So you'd, you'd match like the, the rock properties, or you could match the morphology. What does it look like? Well, if you're trying to make a simulant, wouldn't you want both? You know, you don't want A or B, you want A and B. And so they were working on like, hey, let's try and actually use 3D printing so we can make these really difficult to, to manufacture materials into the correct shape as opposed to just like doing blocks or something that, you know, it was easy, but we can actually make like a high fidelity replicate. And so that's actually one of what, I think that's just such a clever use of materials and manufacturing for something that I wouldn't have thought of that. I and mean, that was just one of those cool things where, you know, we, we know the right people who are working on instruments or working on rem remote systems. And they've got this complaint and we happen to, you know, smart overheard it. He's like, Hey, 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 I might be able to help you. <laughs> yeah. um, and and that's, that's a lot of what we do is, is work with other people to just mm -hmm. try and, and save them headaches and make their stuff. Yeah. better. You're painting our group, like a bunch of heroes right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Samad, what a hero. The, 
<laughs> it seems it seems like what our group does is create impossible materials to meet impossible design specifications. <laughs> yeah, we something I, I I like to tell people I I ask if people is well so I'll say I I like to go into meetings actually not being very well educated about their field you know I I like to learn a little bit about it so I'm I'm conversant in it but I don't want to know necessarily all of the fundamental assumptions and have those ingrained in myself because usually fundamental assumptions in designing systems came about because somebody recognized there were all these limits to what was available at that time. And if I've already internalized those, I'm not going to question them. You know, I'll, I'll see them as like, oh yes, you, you have to make this out of X, Y, Z material. But if I come in kind of as a novice where I just know all of what I know, and I know a little bit about what you guys are about, but I can start to poke at you and be like, hey, does that really have to be done that way? You know, do you really need to think about doing that? And, you know, a lot of times the answer is, here's why stop pestering us. And I'm like, cool, that's great. You know, I, I, I try and preface things with, I'm going to ask you a lot of dumb questions. And a lot of them are going to have very simple answers about why I'm wrong. But what I'm looking for is that one time I ask a question out of a hundred or 500 questions I ask you where you go, oh, that's a really good one. I don't know about that because that's where we're going to find our next generation technology is in these little cracks and assumptions that have been sitting in the field for 50 years. Everybody's done it because that's how it was done before. You know, our, our group works with you to go back and say, you know, what are these assumptions we've made that we, we shouldn't be making anymore because the world has moved on from where we were at that time. And, and, we just don't remember that, you know, this, this was even uh, an assumption that was made. I don't know if that answered the question right or not, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like that. Yeah. Cause uh, you're coming in with a, with a different perspective and sometimes that's where the crazy ideas come and it changes things. Right. So I suppose that leads quite nicely into how you would define your role as a technologist at JPL. Yeah. So uh, I, I think the way a lot of us view a technologist is that we're, we're like research engineers. So, so engineers are people who work on flight hardware directly. I mean, you know, they're making the actual stuff that's going to go into space. Scientists are the ones who take mission data and, you know, they're the ultimate customers. We build all of these probes and satellites and landers and rovers, and all those things. We build those for the scientists. You know, we're not doing it just because it's a really cool thing. I mean, yeah, we're doing it because it's really cool, but like, the reason that we're getting funded to do this is so that the scientists can try and pull data back and we can learn more about the world and more about our place in the universe. The technologist's job to me is to look at what the engineers are doing and say, well, we're having all these problems today. You know, we've had to make these compromises. We've had to make these really kind of like kludgy solutions to make a design close. What can I do to make this work better for future missions so that I can save size, weight, mass, or power? I can improve performance. You know, I can do these sorts of things. And then on the other, the flip end, we also work with the scientists and say, hey, you know, what are the missions you guys really want to do in the future? What are the things you need to do to get this science goal that you've never been able to do before? What, what instruments missing, what mission capability is missing? You know, do you need this massive increase in communications? Do you need more, you know, like for me, uh, going back to the thermal stuff, it's, you know, oh, well, we need more 
we need processing power so we can do these synthetic aperture radar things, right? We need these great computers. Well, I'm, I'm not an electrical engineer. I'm not a semiconductor person. At one point I thought I was going to be, but that didn't happen. You know, I, I work on kind of these bigger dumb materials. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm not gonna make them like a new processor, but I do know that newer processors tend to be smaller and higher power density and heat's a problem in space. So, okay, let's find out is, is getting the heat out of these things a real issue for, for you know, so, some applications and in, in a lot of missions, they say, no, it doesn't really matter. We're fine. Don't, don't, don't bother me. I don't want, I don't want to add any more complexity to our system, but then, you know, you hit the right person who goes, yeah, we're having a real bear of a problem where, you know, we can only run it 20% of the time because when the, we turn our system on, it just gets so hot with all the processing power we use that we need to be 50%, but we can only do 20%. Like, can you help us get this heat out? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's, that's where I found my niche. And, and so that, you know, I'm useful on, on the decadal survey, you know, there's, I don't know, like 10, 15, whatever, 20, there's a lot of different projects out there that are useful. And I look through what technologies or what technologies they need to do those missions. And there's a lot of them that I look at. I'm like, I do not have the right toolkit to solve these problems. You know, I'm, I'm not going to solve high temperature ablatable surfaces. That sounds like a really cool problem. I, I would love to do it, but that's not really in my skill set today. And there's probably other people who are much more suited to it. And so I try and find these ones where, where, you know, the things I know would solve that problem. And then if I happen to notice, the other, I actually I'll say the other thing that our group does a lot of is we do matchmaking. We're all a bunch of, we joke, we're a bunch of yentas in our group because we play matchmaker to all these different groups around lab. And it's not just the fact that we know a lot of stuff ourselves it's that we know a lot of people and so a lot of the value i think i bring to lab and people like myself bring to, to the lab and to organizations in general is that because we have this very wide net that we work over with all these very diverse groups we also have very diverse networks within these technical fields and so i'll read something I'm like oh my gosh you know this is a problem that so and so really might know a lot about but i bet they've never read about this because this is so far outside of their field and i'll just you know, I'll invest an hour or two introducing them to someone, like trying to help kickstart the conversation, get it going. And I've had a couple of those, you know, turn into multi-year endeavors where they work together. I don't hear back from either of them. And then like a year or two down the line, I'm like, oh, cool. You guys published the paper. That's, that's really awesome. Like you've, you know, you got a patent on it. I'm, I'm really excited that like I was able to make this connection and, and help create this thing when in the scheme of things, it, it took almost no effort on my part, but you know, I got to, I got to give birth to this research that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And, and I, I'm not going to lie. That's actually some of my favorite things to do because the amount of actual work it takes on my part is a lot less than the ones where I have to go and do all the legwork and write the proposals, you know, do the work and all those things. It's, it's really fun to just see like, oh, you made this connection and, and it turned into something awesome. I, I think that's the other really important part of, of being a technologist is having that broad spectrum of, of skills and, and, people that you know across all different fields and be able to make those little connections that wouldn't happen without you. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. After learning from you guys matchmaking, I've actually put multiple people in touch from, from planetary science to, to PyCalfad with Richard from, and to ceramic matrix composites and software engineering. It's just because our group does so many things and we, we really try to bring all our skill sets together and networks of people we know to solve the problem, right? And it actually helps us to even help a little, help others as well, get to where they're going. And, and it's really fun. I'll also say when you, when you're in a group where kind of nobody's the same, you know, we're all in a way, we're all irreplaceable. 
uh, because if, if somebody leaves, you know, nobody really knows all the stuff they do. There's not really anyone around that can pick up exactly what they did. You know, maybe we can help finish off the project, but they have this unique thing, but it, it's also cool because a lot of us, we kind of overlap half with each, with each other. And so we make really good collaborators on projects because we know just enough to be dangerous in everybody else's field, but we also have this like extra specialization where it's like, no, 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 don't ask me. You, you need to go talk to somebody else about this. Let me, let me hook you up with this person. And so we, we bring each other work. We bring each other really fun projects and ideas without having to kind of like step on each other's toes without feeling like, oh, this person's like, you know, kind of stealing ideas from me or anything that way. It's, it's, it's really fun working in a diverse group that way, as opposed to one where, you know, we're all hyper-focused on this one problem, which is, is good in some ways when you're, you know, when you're doing really deep problems and you're investing a lot of time and money on solving one issue, you need a very focused team that, that is all experts on something. But for the sort of work we do, having this kind of like little bit of overlap between everyone and all these different fields of materials is, is very cool because, you know, just because I don't know something doesn't mean I can't get an answer from a world-class expert without just walking next door into the next office or, or just shouting over my cubicle wall and, and get a response back in 10 seconds. Speaking of world-class experts, what are bulk metallic glasses? Scott. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. What, that's what you're an expert in. <laughs> that is, yes. So uh, bulk metallic glasses. So most, this, is a, this isn't something that most people realize, but every metal you deal with day to day is actually a crystal. So you think about back to like chemistry class and, and middle school, you know, you had your sodium and chlorine ions in this very regular pattern. You think about the, the graphite in your pencil, you learned about the atomic planes and how they slide off of each other. And that's, that's how basically most everything we work with day to day is other than like, you know, there's some glass and some plastics are, are amorphous. And so metallic glasses, as a name implies, are metals that are also glasses. And so we usually think glass just means something's clear, but glass doesn't actually mean anything about the optical properties. It's, it's how the atoms themselves are arranged. And so in a metallic glass, what you're actually doing is you're cooling it so fast that your liquid atoms, which are just kind of all jumbled around, don't have enough time to arrange themselves into this structured crystal. Um, and so the very first ones that were invented, you needed cooling rates in order of like a million degrees a second. So it was done with a technique called splat quenching. You take this little tiny droplet, a couple milligrams, and you melt it, and then you smash it between these two copper platins, and you get like, you know, a 20 micron thick film, and it came out amorphous. The original paper on this was like a page and a half long. It was, it was like a super short paper. It, it had like one x-ray scan on it with a really bad baseline. It looked terrible. I can't believe that it got published, but it did. You know, it was, it was pretty cool, pretty cool paper. But, but so you just have these, basically there's not a structure to your atoms. They're just randomly arranged. And that makes them very unique compared to every other metal that we deal with that has this regular structure because the regular structure is what gives us kind of these predictable properties. It's what gives us deformation and what's, so what gives us basically the entire field of metallurgy is about how do you tinker around with the way you arrange your atoms in a lattice and how do you put other things into this lattice to, to give rise to other properties. That's basically, I spent my entire undergrad career learning about this stuff and being super excited and be like, I want to do, you know, control crystal growth. And I want to understand how do you put second phases into crystals to make them even better? Like this sounds so exciting. And then I went to grad school 
And I focused entirely on how do you avoid crystal growth and prevent crystals from happening. And I like, I had this like, (laughs) I had this really weird moment one day, like a few years in, I'm like, wait a second, I'm actively avoiding what I went to grad school for. I wanted to understand this growth and all I'm doing is just avoiding my favorite thing at at all possible. But it turned out what I was actually interested in was processing. And, and how do you, the, the cool thing about metallic glasses is, is because they don't crystallize. So normally when you go from a liquid to a crystal, you have this sudden phase change. You go from this fluid structure to a, a rigid solid. I'm putting hand quotes here instantly, you know, it's just very rapid. And so you, so you go from very fluid to not fluid at all instantly because metallic glasses don't actually have that transition to a, a, a rigid crystal. You go through a whole regime of viscosities. So like the ability for it to flow. So you go from like water to honey, to taffy, to, you know, to tar, to, you know, pitch or whatever, you know, through the whole regime. And that becomes really exciting from a processing standpoint, because when, when we process plastics, we don't, you don't process a plastic when it, when it flows like water, you, you process it when it flows like honey or like taffy, and you just can't do that with traditional metals, but you can with a metallic glass. And then the other great part is that some metallic glasses. So the one thing I do other one want to say is that metallic glasses are not a specific alloy. They are a type of, uh, I shouldn't say type of solid, but they're, they're a type of metal and you can make it out of all different alloys. So you can have zirconium, titanium, iron, nickel, calcium, you know, you can make it out of just about any element. You can make metallic glasses. It just turns into how fast you need to quench it. And how cold do you have to quench it to keep it amorphous? There were some people in my lab that did stuff that like you had to keep it below room temperature, which I was like, I don't want to work on that. <laughs> I don't know many, you know, I wanted to work on something that like would eventually find its way in like store shelves or whatever. Like I, I wanted, I didn't necessarily want to work on scientific curiosities. So, you know, most of what I work on are, are zirconium, titanium based materials. They sound expensive, but there are savings to be had in, in processing routes and things to make them cheap. I know it's a little bit of a, an aside on all of it, but, but basically metallic glasses, I'll, I'll say property wise, you get these like ultra hard high, 10 times as elastic as normal metals, you know, they're not super stiff. So you get this really weird mix of properties in something that you can actually mold like a plastic. Um, so it's, it's a really neat material. There haven't been a whole lot of applications necessarily found for it yet. I'll say that, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's one of those things that, you know, someday there will be like the killer app will be found for it. You know, Apple's invested a bunch of money in looking at this for like the backs of cell phones, because, you know, I don't know Zen if you're old enough to have had one of the really old iPods that had the aluminum backing on it. I, I, had uh, I think I've seen that third... before. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I had an iPod, I had an iPod third generation, the one with the little click wheel that you could spin around, oh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, with the two color screen and, and the pro- it had this beautiful shiny aluminum back when you took it out of the case. But the problem was the first time you put it in your pocket, it would get scratched by your keys or by like the little bit of dust or dirt that was in your pocket or whatever, it would scratch it up and you'd no longer have this beautiful back. You would have this like really scratchy, shiny surface that kind of looked bad. Did, um, did they not so even anodize it or was it just a chrome? Oh, it was just it was chrome, just, I think. Oh my God. It, it, it may have been anodized. I don't know. It was really shiny. It was really pretty. I, I, I'll just say this was like, I was in middle school, high school. I don't know. I was young. I was young. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it, they abandon this, this kind of like super shiny surface. And if you look at most consumer devices, you don't have like a Chrome look. 
yeah. you, you have a matte finish because that's more, much more resistant to showing scratches and showing you know, deterioration of the surface. And so that's actually been one of the appeals for metallic glass for a very long time is because we have this ability to mold it. The idea like also cell phones used to be mostly made out of plastic. If you had old flip phones, those were all like a chromed plastic sort of look. And it was nice because they were really cheap. You could, you know, you could make a, a phone case for pennies as opposed to today where our smartphones are, you know, they, they come out of like machined blocks of aluminum or magnesium. And that's not cheap to do. So if, you know, if you could use a slightly more expensive material, but injection mold it, you'll save the money on machining and you'll wind up with this material. that's like ultra scratch resistant. If you, if it's metallic glass, you know, this stuff is really hard to polish. It's a pain in the butt. Spent many, many, many days having to polish these things for trying to study what goes on inside of them. And, and so that's been like a long-term goal of like the electronics industry has been to say, hey, can we injection mold these in the cell phone cases or laptop cases? Because then you would be the first company on the block to have this ultra shiny, you know, scratch resistant electronics case. And so there, there have been some watches, I believe, that have been made, but you know, they're like $10,000 for the watch, partially as a status symbol. You know, it's a mechanical watch as a status symbol uh, to begin with, but you know, I don't, I'm not gonna pay 10 grand for my phone personally. Do, do you have to heat treat? Do you have to heat treat it after you cost it? So, I'll say the field is is a split on what you need to do. It, in some respects, you don't want to heat treat it because the highest cooling rate can often be very, very favorable. In other senses, you would want to heat treat it because it'll give you a more repeatable product. So like you'll take a little bit of a hit in your properties, but it'll be more consistent. And so there's debate in what you should do. Personally, from being on the NASA side now, or on, I shouldn't even say NASA side, but personally being on like the more cautious side with the products we develop, you know, the certainty of your properties is a lot more than what is, you know, your, your best 5%. You know, we, we care a lot more about what's your worst 0.1% matters a lot more than your top 99%. So I would rather heat treat it and take the little bit of loss in average properties if it brings up my worst ones. But that's a, yeah. that's a, I'll say that's a contentious argument within the field and there's no right answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not like, it's not necessarily like using an aluminum alloy where, you know, you have to do, you know, like T651 or, or, or mm -hmm. you know, something very specific afterwards to get the right microstructure. It, it really is, uh, depending on what you and your taste of adventure is, uh, yeah. and, and your alloy and all those sorts yeah. of things. Have you got, have you got Richard, uh, my mentor, Richard Otis to do any uncertainty quantification on bulk metallic glass? Yeah. So we were doing, we we've been developing, actually part of my PhD was developing bulk metallic glass alloys for gearboxes. The concept was you look at what makes a good gear. You want an elastic material that's very hard. And, you know, has a couple other properties and, and you go through kind of like the Ashby analysis and you go, wow, metallic glasses kind of check all the boxes. These look great. And you look into papers and every single paper says metallic glass is great and where, why are we using these? And then, you know, poor grad student me goes to actually, you know, you build a, a system to do the test. And it turns out that like metallic glass is actually abysmal and where every, the, the literature's wrong. <laughs> they're, they're terrible. Yeah. Like, I mean, they're, they're good yeah. and where compared to a piece of plastic, you know, golf clap for metallic glasses, but you know, you compare it to like, we were going up against like Vascomax steel, which is what we actually use in gearboxes. And it was terrible. But so we, we went out and we, we did a, a huge array of different metallic glass alloys from different families, trying to figure out what could give rise to good quality gear. And we were able to find one, uh, this, this copper zirconium 
based glass. And then I spent years because uh, I'll say this, like the difference between you asked me earlier, what's, what's a technologist. I'll also say a question that comes up a lot is what's the difference between an engineer and a scientist. And my experience I'll say has been, you know, engineers typically want to run experiments that are only going to be better than a previous one. You always want to find what's a better thing as a scientist. I spent a lot of time actually making alloys that were really, really crappy because I wanted to figure out why are these ones really bad and why are the good ones good? And I would try and take my good, my good alloys and make them go bad. And what I found is, is I was pretty sure that it looked like it was an oxide issue where you'd, you'd build up because when I would run it, just about every metallic glass alloy in, in a non-oxygen atmosphere wound up being good. And by the way, this will get back to Richard. I'm, I'm building to it. So, so I, I, I had this strong internal intuition. I couldn't prove it because we couldn't find, figure out the right exact experiments to show it. It's this ultra thin oxide layer that seemed to wear off. And, you know, do, doing these experiments is, is relatively expensive. It's pretty labor intensive. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of test time to do these gear on gear to, you know, I, I literally make two gears, run them against each other. It would have to run for a long time. You have to monitor them. You have to do a lot of measurements, the post analysis. It, it's, a, it's a lot of work. So after I got to talking to Richard, I'm like, hey, like, you know, I, I really think it's this oxide problem. And I think it's when you get beyond a certain amount of oxide, something goes wrong, but I just don't know how to physically go and measure it outside of literally just making like a hundred samples of small increases in oxygen levels and like really, really expensive, labor intensive, huge pain. He's like, oh, well, this is exactly what, what CalFAT's for. Like you want to look at like your, your solidus and liquidus, liquidus lines for micro additions of oxygen. Like I can do that. And so, yeah, that's, that's what he did. And he, he made kind of these projections of, of where you would have the liquidus line would just like take off and yeah. we would get higher than we did our typical melting process, which would mean we wouldn't melt or disassociate all of our oxides into melt and they would be left behind and then those could form like little micro or nucleation sites or something and, and cause basically defects in the surface of our our materials and his predictions actually wound up being pretty close you know I, i'd say well, it was like within like 10 or 20 percent which wow. when you're looking across orders of magnitude is yeah. like slam dunk this is awesome you know you just saved me like four years worth of miserable work. So it was really exciting actually to work with someone in, with that amazing thermodynamics background where for him, it's like, yeah, this is a pretty straightforward question. And, you know, we still haven't necessarily gotten the actual mechanistic thing of what's going on, you know, atomically, you know, we're not, not doing like, like we're not doing like atomic simulations, right? We're not yeah. looking at scraping off atom by atom and I'm not doing like, you know, TEM looking at where and there or something, trying to find my wear products. But like we have this, thing, we have this computational tool that's very much pointing to where we think it is experimentally. And then the really cool thing is that we can take what he did there and extend it to other alloys. So if I want to oh. go in and, and add a couple more micro alloy additions, for me, I would have to go back in and I'm back at square one because I don't know what these micro alloying did to the oxygen sensitivity or the nitrogen sensitivity or the boron sensitivity or the aluminum or, you know, there's, there's all these micro elements that you can add. Whereas for him, it's like, oh, well, let's just, you know, add one more potential or one more thing we're taking into as a cross term. And it's relatively cheap for him to add in more and more and more elements. Whereas for me as an experimentalist, it's like, you look at this and you're just like, yeah, I'm just gonna throw my hands up and be like, my spec says trace amounts of these. 
Yeah. I just pray. And we were actually having problems with this because we, we would buy like commercial size lots of this. That was actually another part of the project was scaling from, you know, making 20 grams at a time to, I want to make 20 kilograms. And so we go to a commercial vendor, they would use very high purity materials, but they would have, you know, 200, 500 parts per million of these other little tiny impurities in them. And depending on the mine where each of their stuff came from, they would have different micro impurities in them. And they wouldn't tell us necessarily, you know, Mm -hmm. they might not have even known which, where each one of those was sourced from. I I don't know. I mean, I don't think they were trying to be cheap on us or anything. It's just, you know, where their supplier for high qual, high purity aluminum comes from, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, one place might have a little more tin than another place. And that actually wound up wrecking some of our alloys was having just this little bit of some other element in there that was because of one of our constituent alloy or constituent elements that was getting alloyed in. And that was something that for me as an experimentalist would be like, no, thank you. I'm just going to give up right now and we're going to get somebody else to work on this. But to be able to work with a computational person who who can sit down and go, yeah, oh yeah, I'll, I'll compute all these these free energy surfaces and I'll, I'll tell you how this is going to affect things. And we'll get a pretty good idea of, of which seem to be the most sensitive materials. That's like, I felt like I'm living in the future because somebody could just like yeah. wizard this stuff up for me. Where it's like, you know, I do thermodynamics. It's like literally sitting down with a pen and paper doing miserable. Actually, <laughs> yeah. see like the, the really cool stuff that comes out of this for people who chose to specialize in a different path than me within a, you know, a sub, sub, sub field. That, that was, a, that was again, you know, one of the great things about working somewhere with highly talented people from all different backgrounds. You know, it's, I, I never would have thought that I'd be like, Yes, I'm super stoked that like my my cub- cubicle neighbor is the computational thermodynamicist. Well, yeah. Who? No offense to, to anyone who does that, but like you know that's not what I think. Like I want my neighbor to be. Uh, <laughs> you know, you would think like, oh, I want somebody who's very similar to what I do, so I can bounce ideas off of them. But it's like no, like they saw he solved a very fundamental, huge problem for us for relatively little effort. I don't want to yeah. say it was easy. It was not an easy problem, but the amount of work he had to put in was. Or is Magtube less than us? Yeah. What a hero Richard is. This time is Richard set uh, to be a hero. Yes, another hero of our group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was very I was very lucky to be able to sit literally next to him for a long time in my internship. Learned a lot. So uh, yeah, computational materials is just something that shortens the R and D time from many years to just Maybe a couple months, right? And uh, yeah. it allows you to do so much more with materials. And, and I want to say, like, you know, so I, I started working on this this gear stuff back in 2010, probably. I think it was a, or 2009 was was when we started it. And the typical time frame between like the the need for a new material and implementation of it is like 10 to 20 years. It takes a really long time to commercialize something, get into an end use. And we're on track for that because we're looking for these, these gearboxes to be a part of cold arm. One of the, the NASA clips missions on the moon in the next couple of years, which, which is very exciting. But like, you know, as a younger person, I still like to think of myself as, you know, you go, wow, this is only gonna take 15 years to come to fruition. It's like (laughs) 15 years. Like, I mean, I went from having like my, my Nokia, my first cell phone to having a smartphone in 15 years. And it's oh, like, yeah. that's how long it takes to do like a simple materials introduction. Like the world is moving way faster than that. 
like materials need to modernize and, and understand how to do this faster. And that's actually been a very big push within the field, within the multiple federal, multiple governments actually have been pushing as well to see the, the time frame go from 10 to 20 years to five to 10 years. So it's still not going to be like, you know, done snap. It's, it's super quick. It's not like putting a, you know, an, next generation, I, I shouldn't even say next generation cell phones, those take years to develop, but you know, but getting it down by at least a factor of two. So you don't have to spend your entire half your career <laughs> on just one product. Yeah. You know, you can do it in a, in a much more reasonable amount of time. Yeah. yeah these are very difficult problems, commercializing materials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but the model, the, the model based stuff is, is, is enormous for the field. I'm, I'm really excited. I can't wait to see what incredibly brilliant things people come up with. You know, I try to stay current with it, but it's, it moves so fast and there's so many different cool things. And I highly encourage people who are into computer science. If you don't have like an absolute love of like the tech world necessarily, but you like programming, or if you like material science, but you want to do more of like the programming avenue or even any, any honestly, any, any engineering field, there is so much coming out in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years for computational tools that I don't think we're going to be doing engineering the same way in a decade or two as we are doing today. And I think it's going to be a bigger disruption than moving to computers where we went from like, you know, drawing stuff by hand to going to CAD. All we did was, was get rid of the pencil and replace it with a mouse in, in the future. It's, it's really going to be a, a paradigm shift where, you know, this is happening with, with generative design where you're not necessarily telling a computer what it should look like. You're telling it what it needs to solve for you. And mm -hmm. I think we're going to start seeing that in more and more fields. So right now is an awesome time to be young. And I, I hope I can stay like with it as, as I get older and I don't turn into like this curmudgeonly old man who's like, no, you, this is how we did it back when I was a kid and no computational tools around what I want to do. You know, I, I it's, it's only. yeah. <laughs> there's, there's gonna be so much cool stuff. I just yeah. can't wait to see where we are in the future. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, look forward to it. The world's gonna be totally different yeah. um, the way we solve these problems. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, that's what I appreciate about our group. It's always forward looking and quick to adopt new tools and cool solutions. Like we have Ryan Watkins working on generative design. Very cool. I was gonna ask, so which mission, which mission did the bulk metallic glass gears belong to? So it was, it was a little bit of a sliding scale for a little bit. Yeah. We, we kept targeting different missions because it wasn't clear, you know, we thought we were going to be super fast to infuse. We're like, oh, we'll solve all this in four years. It'll be no problem. It'll be fine. And then, yeah, like, like I said, it, it took the 10 years like we expected. So we went from being like, you know, hopeful on being on, on Mars 2020 or uh, Perseverance Miss that. Okay. No, we're going, we're going to do Europa lander. Well, Europa lander isn't happening anymore. So, okay. We'll do something for, you know, the moon is actually a really good application. It's really cold at night. We want to do the, and I'll say, I haven't really framed this. The reason we were doing metallic class gears is that at cold temperatures, gearboxes, they have lubricant inside of them, just like your engine does on earth. We do the same thing in space. The problem is if, if anyone listening lives very far north or I guess really far south, if you're in the Southern hemisphere, you might have an engine block heater. You know, your engine gets so cold that the, the lubricant seizes up and it just, you can't move. So we actually have heaters on our, all of our actuators, or when we're somewhere that stays warm, we just wait for it to get warm out. That's what we do on Mars. Most of the time is, is you just wait for it to get warm outside and then the lubricant gets warm enough that it can flow. 
But what happens when you want to, you know, you want to go somewhere that's really cold and you don't have a lot of power to keep things heated. You know, you need to, you need to operate cold and there are not, there don't exist like long life gearboxes for these really cold temperatures where you, you can get away without using a wet lubricant. And so that was the goal of metallic glass is that at cryogenic temperatures, it performs very similar to ambient temperatures. And because it, we are able to demonstrate it performed well at ambient temperatures without a lubricant, it should work well as it should also work at cryogenic temperatures. So the goal is to say, okay, well, you know, we could enable night operation on, at, at, on Mars. So mm -hmm. you don't have to keep these gearboxes heated. You don't have to wait for it to get warm out. You land on the surface of Europa. You're very power constrained. You don't have to heat your gearboxes up to do all your actuation, moving and grabbing things. You don't have to waste your very precious power on keeping those warm. Okay, next question. Those two missions, we didn't quite fit. So we are looking at lunar, very hot right now, probably going to be very hot for hopefully the next few decades to centuries. You know, let's, let's hope humanity keeps pushing. But but night operation on the moon is, is a big deal. If you can't operate at night, you're losing half of your time to do science. And actually, that's when some really exciting science can be done is at night. So if you have to waste, again, part of your power budget running these heaters, particularly if you're on solar, that's a real issue. Or if you want to go to like a permanently shadowed region of the moon to sample some of these like ancient ices, you know, you'd like to be able to run these actuators without heat. And so that's what this whole project was about. And so we wound up getting involved in this as, as a payload on this project called cold, arm. I should remember this better. <laughs> it's been a while since I've acted. I believe it's made by Astrobotic and we were going to be the actuators for this arm that was going to be on a, a commercial lander or payload system or Eclipse project, where it's going to be able to reach out and grab something as a demonstration to show that you can actually run a sample collection system without heating everything. And then in the future, basically we could create gearboxes for any mission that wants them, you know, maybe a little bit of lead time to make your exact gearbox or something, or you conform to the ones we've already designed, but then you don't need heaters for your actuation systems. So that means for your things that, you know, grippers, grabbers, wheel things spinning around all that sort of stuff you know we, we can try and make cryo capable versions for those so that's that's the hope and i'm i'm really optimistic about it i'm really excited i'm not gonna lie i so i grew up my dad worked for an aerospace and he worked on the lunar rover and every single time anything came on tv relating to the apollo missions my dad would go i worked on that and there's nothing that <laughs> I want more than to say oh yeah you know that lander on the moon yeah, that's got my stuff that I invented. Oh yeah, yeah that would be awesome. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's he's never told me what he actually did on that project. Yeah. So it's like, oh no, I know exactly what I did. I can point right to it. That's got my <laughs> yeah. It's got my Scott Alloy. Awesome, awesome. Do you say Scott Alloy? <laughs> yeah, uh, name it that. There, there is a tendency in our field yeah. to name alloys after yourself, so there, it's it's actually pretty know. fun because it it's pretty open and sometimes people will name it in code where yeah. it'll look like random letters or something, but it actually is like an acronym for so-and-so super awesome alloy or something <laughs> like that. It's, it's the, the little jokes yeah. people try to slip in in academia is, is kind of fun. Mm. Yeah. So the, you were also in a NASA 2022 spinoff article on Fabrisonics, right? So what, what is that about? Yeah. So, so one of the other really awesome things I like about working at JPL is that we get to work with a lot of small businesses around the country and, and even around the world sometimes. 
so Fabrisonic is is a spinoff company of the Edison Welding Institute right across the street from Ohio State. And they have developed this really neat technique called ultrasonic additive manufacturing. So ultrasonic welding is a technique where you have what's called a sonode. It's basically a, a speaker that you run a bunch of power through it and you make it go wah. And it's able to basically bond the interface between two materials. So this is really common in plastics. You can go to trade shows and get like little giveaways. These things are so common. And what what their kind of neat take is, is that one, they're not doing on plastics, they're doing it on metals, which is pretty cool. And instead of just doing a spot weld, which is what's very common or in, in a, a, the other way it's used is as a linear weld where you have like two wheels so you can do continuous welding. They have a, they can do a line weld. Oh, think of it like a steamroller where, you know, you just have this wheel that's going across a surface and wherever it, it touches, it kind of consolidates two sheets together. And so by going, you know, down a line, they, they can weld like an inch wide and then they come back and they go an inch, you know, just an inch over and they weld next to that. And they can do this over a large area and they can actually create large structures. And by going in and, and machining away, you can actually 3D print with this. It's really cool. They've got a great animation on their website of how to do this. It, it's a really cool technique that I like because most 3D printing methods use heat. You, you heat it up, you melt it, you you massively deform it through like store welding. You know, you, you, basically you erase whatever heat treatment you had put into the material. And you also, when you get that hot, you get a lot of like kinetics and thermodynamics and all sorts of really interesting science goes on when you get that hot. From the scientific perspective, a lot of really interesting things go on. From the engineering perspective, a lot of really interesting things go on. <laughs> Meaning there's a lot of work you have to do to figure out what the heck is going on in your system. With Fabrisonic's method, it only heats up to like 70 C it doesn't get very warm. So for, for most alloys, it, it doesn't really do anything. So you get this, this solid state bond. That's, that's almost like a, like a, a vacuum bond, you know, just, or a vacuum weld, it just sticks together and they do it where the surface get rubbed together really hard. It breaks the oxides up. And then you basically have like pure metal touching pure metal and they stick together. So, so you can actually retain the properties of the parent material, which is exciting. You can do dissimilar welds. So like aluminum to copper, is actually really easy for them to do because you're not melting it. It They just stick basically, which can give you some really awesome devices. And then the other exciting thing is that they can do very large volumes because they're not doing, they're not melting. You don't have to worry about oxide contamination. You don't have to worry about you know, your environment nearly as much. You can just do it in open air. So they can actually make like six foot by six foot plates. So you can make really big stuff. And so I've been involved with, with Fabrisonic. This is thanks to AJ Master Pietro here at JPL was the one who actually introduced me to them. He's an engineer, a thermal engineer here at JPL, and he's been a longtime believer in them. And we've been working with them to make all sorts of crazy cool thermal devices, you know, large structures, embedded channels. And it's neat because when most of what I do is, is kind of in like this, it has to fit in inside of a 10 inch square envelope for my, my printed structures. But with the Fabrisonic ones, like I have plates that are like three feet by four feet large. You know, they're huge, these huge things. And like, it's really fun. Cause like I give tours and I show them off to people and I, you know, I'm showing everyone like these little things you can fit in the palm of your hand. And then I'm like, oh yeah, let me show you this other thing that we've printed. You know, we had printed by this company and I lug out this enormous panel and maybe that's what, like I threw out my back doing that or something, but you know, it's, it's, it's really awesome to have this huge variety 
of tools in your toolbox. And again, like, you know, this has led to when I've worked with other projects at JPL where people are like, man, I really need something big. I'm like, I might have, might have the right company for you. And, you know, I get the service matchmaker, you know, they pay the company to go off and do something. And then maybe three years down the road, it's like, oh, you know, that developmental work you did for so-and-so, I actually could build off that with my other project. So, so that's one of the coolest things. And, and I'll also say, like, don't think that the only neat research is going on at like these, you know, giant centers like NASA or, or JPL or, you know, these, these huge places. There's an enormous number of these small companies doing the coolest work in the world. Mm. They're hyper, hyper-focused, hyper-specialized, you know, it's like a dozen people just really pushing it because they believe in a technology and you can make a real difference in those sorts of places as well. Yeah. I, I wouldn't lie if, if I said that, like, I wouldn't mind working in one of those places. They seem like a lot of fun. That's a very different take, though, than what I do today. It looks like very fun work. Yeah. What about the porous metal additive work that you've done? What is the idea about them? What applications would they have? Yeah. So, so this is actually a fun story where I was the one saying, no, that's impossible where I, I was brought into this this meeting with some some thermal folks where they use these sintered metal foams. It was a project being led by by Eric Sonata. And they they needed these porous metal foams. They're basically they take you take metal powder, you pack it into a mold, you put it into a furnace with some pressure on it, and you're left with like once it anneals and everything in sinters, you're left with like this this porous brick. And they're using it for controlling the flow of of liquid and vapor. And they're paying a lot of money for these because they're kind of a specialty object. They're being made special for them, but they were really, really lim limited in the geometries they could do. And so Eric called me to a meeting. He's like, hey, you know, I know you're really creative. You're doing stuff with like 3D printing. Do you think you could 3D print me something porous? I was like, yeah, like you need like quarter inch pores or something like, you know, like a lattice. He's like, no, 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 we, we need like, like 20 microns, 10 microns. I was like, no, no that's, I don't think you could do that. He's like, well, what if I just gave you some money on this project to try and do it and just think about it for a while, see what you can do. Nice. Like, All right, sure. Whatever you, you give me money. I'll yeah. work on it. Right? That's the best way to get the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You believe in me, man. And so, you know, we thought about for a long time, we're like, okay, well reading like, okay, so people get these like porosity defects and when, when things don't print correctly, is there a way we could just like make a really, really crappy print? And so we, we worked with an outside company and worked with them to come up with a bunch of customized parameters and things. And basically the goal was to make the worst printed 3d printed metal we could that still would survive printing. There was like, you know, this kind of cusp we had to find. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we did a couple of tests and we're like, it came back and it's like, yeah, no, it actually worked. <laughs> we couldn't believe it. Like it came, wow. even they were like, yeah, they, they were like, why do you guys want this stuff? This is garbage. And like, I would talk to a lot of other people in the field. I'm like, yeah, like I'm working on this porous additive stuff. You know, I'm trying to get porosity. And the general response from the field is like, why would you want to do that? That's stupid. Yeah, exactly. Everybody yeah. knows you get porosity. <laughs> and, you know, I'm trying to work with companies doing computational stuff because I, I want to develop models because the way we do this is very much as I was insulted by reviewer number two in one of my papers, it was very cook and look science which was <laughs> because it's it's very complicated, you know, what's going on in the melt pool, all that stuff. Like there, there's no good way for me as, as someone non-expert in modeling to go out and and model this stuff. And so I talked to companies and companies make, you know, people doing these systems for predicting porosity. And you're like, oh, well, below 90% dense, our, our models just break down. Why would you care about that anyways? Like, that's just garbage. You want, everybody wants fully dense material. Like that's what we're trying to solve is 99.999% is dense. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I want 60% dense or 40% dense. 
they're like, oh, well, you could just make lattices. I'm like, no, no, no. But I need it at this really tiny scale. And and the general consensus from the field for for years was like, this is dumb. Who needs this? And you know, I was totally there with them for a long time when I first started this. I'm like, yeah, whatever. If they want to do this like porous printing thing, whatever. Like I could have just made them a mold and just cast this thing, you know, and, and just sent through this thing another way. But like the more we worked on it, we're like, wait a second. If if I can control my porosity in one region, I could control it in two regions in a single print. If I can control my porosity, I can go to fully solid in certain areas too. And I was just like, oh, wait a second. This is like an entirely new design envelope that just did not exist as a thing before. So we had an entirely new knob to turn on our on our printers and like what kind of materials we could make with them. And so then it was like, okay, so we did this with steel, which we had already been buying these steel wicks. It's like, well, can we translate this process to aluminum? Because you can't buy like aluminum micro wicks of this style. And excuse me. And so you can't buy aluminum wicks of this style. So we took what we learned from doing this in steel and we turned around and did the exact same thing in aluminum. It's like, oh, wait a second. We can make these porous structures have materials you've fundamentally can't make traditionally. So now it's really exciting because it's like, oh, you want a porous calcium structure? Okay, you know, give me some R&D money and a machine that can do it and I'll figure out how to do it for you. You know, you need a high high temperature refractory that's porous, you want you want microporous tungsten? Let's do it. Whereas, you know, previously that's that's kind of and you want microporous tungsten with with graded porosity, you know? Like that's a okay that's that's a real interesting problem and that's something that traditionally is just exceptionally difficult to do so this is one of those things where it's like i didn't really necessarily get when i first started working on it and i thought it was kind of a dumb idea to oh this is really cool to you know this is really neat and it it turned around from me being like you know i said said at the beginning i was the naysayer like this isn't very important or you know this is not very interesting to maybe we can't do it to I've become like a, a crucial, a, they, they joke I'm, I'm an honorary part of the thermal family because I work with so many projects on them because like I said earlier, you know, it's, it's about at questioning your assumptions. And that's what I do now is it's like, oh, I am all in on this porous stuff. Like I am trying to think as far outside of boxes as I can, you know, as many different weird things and applications I can find a use for it on. And then my absolute favorite thing is when I get a phone call from somebody who I have no idea who they are. They're like, Hey, I heard from so-and-so that heard from so-and-so that you can do this porous printing thing. Could you use it for this? And I'm like, I don't know what that word, you know, it's some obscure engineering subsystem that I don't even know what, you know, what these things are like, okay, do you have like five minutes to walk me through what your problem is? And we go through it, making sure like we don't have like a, this weird X, Y problem where they're asking for the wrong thing or something. And it's like, oh, no, wait, like this is awesome. We, you, this, this is really cool. Let's sit down for half an hour and, and hash this out. I think we, you may have just invented something, you know, and so nice, we'll sit down nice. and, and write all this stuff out and figure out like, did we, did we legitimately come up with something totally new? And so, you know, I have, you know, kind of always questioning you know, why was something designed this way? Um, and I don't want to get into too much of the nitty gritty details about the stuff I work on because it's really kind of hyper-specialized. It's hard to visualize and things, but it's, you know, they're designed the way they are because of previous manufacturing constraints. We've gotten rid of a lot of those constraints. So all of these assumptions and the designs of these systems can go away. And we can ask ourselves, you know, 
this is like, I, I guess, an interesting way to, 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 to do a comparison. It's like, you know, was Kodak, were they a film company or were they a photography company? Because if they're a film company, it makes sense they went out of business when people stopped buying film. If they were a company in a business of helping people take photographs, then there's no excuse for not having jumped on the digital photo bandwagon. And, and so that's where I try and always ask myself is, you know, what is my real pure business here? You know, am I, am I just trying to solve this, you know, a very specific problem or am I trying to solve a general problem? And, so, you know, sometimes I am, sometimes I am a film company with what I'm doing, you know, they, someone I'm working with has a very specific problem. They don't care about making it, you know, elegant or the best version or whatever. They just need something that works today and it's, it's good enough. But what I really like to say is, you know, what are, what is it we're really trying to do here? What is our ultimate goal, right? Was Blockbuster, were they a, a movie rental company or were they a company that would, you know, get you movies to watch at home, right? And that's them versus Netflix. And, and I think you can look at that for a lot of times when you're doing engineering systems is, am I trying to solve, am I trying to make this system better, you know, the, the subsystem that I am hyper-focused on, or am I trying to make the whole system better? And I'll say, this is where I start tilting at windmills organizationally, because I'll look at things and I'll be like, no, you know, you're doing what's good for your group, but you should be asking yourself, what's good for NASA as a whole? What's good for the country? What's good for humanity? Stop caring just about this. Like, look at the big, you know, we need to engineer this as an everyone problem. And that doesn't win me a lot of friends sometimes. Other times it gets me really good friends. So, you know, I still haven't figured out if it's the right move or not, but you know, you always need to ask yourself, like, am I solving my problem? today or am i looking at like what is like the big problem that we're ultimately trying to do and, and to me at, at like jpl every question should be is this going to make us get better science you know 50 years from today is is this going to enable us to do things that we never thought were possible or is this just going to answer like today's mail on today's mission and for me that's something i don't personally like working on as much because I don't know. I'd rather do stuff that, that has a longer lasting effect, I guess. I like the way you think, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So, yeah. With additive and FGMs, that's something that our group works a lot on. But what I want to ask you about is the molecular replicator. Do you think we'll ever get there? Where we'll be able to make everything just from one machine. We can make a laptop with the semiconductors, the wafers, the glass, the screen, the LEDs and the plastic as well, maybe carbon fiber. Do you think we'll ever get there, Scott? You're missing the transparent aluminum. Oh. I, I don't know. I, I don't think we'll get there. I'm, you know, I'll say I'm hopeful that I am wrong. Yeah. You know, there's, there's nothing better in the world than being wrong about predicting the future when you're being conservative. Mm. I'll say that. Like, I, I, I love being wrong. I don't think we'll get to that point, partially because, you know, it's, it's like the same thing with like the general purpose robots. Like building like a hyper-specialized one, they're really good at what they do. Like they're really, really good at what they do. And when, you know, a billion people want the same little widget, it's probably more efficient to just make a factory that makes that widget. That said, you know, if I was cruising on a spacecraft in the, you know, in, in the Gamma Quadrant or something, I would not mind have some, having something could just spit out exactly what I wanted. You know, being in a post-scarcity world would be pretty awesome. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, that that would alleviate a lot of ethical concerns. I think we all we all have about consumptions, and you know, I'll be straight into Star Trek. I I, it, I will say one thing that that really hurts yeah. me hard about my job is that like I'm like very eco-conscious i try to be you know i try to minimize waste recycle do all these things and meanwhile i'm like sitting there like you know blasting out like 15 kilowatts of power to melt like a, a five gram ingot or something and I'm sitting there, like, this is using more power than my house in a year and i, I try you know I, i'm trying to rationalize like okay but in the future you know this is you're still doing mm. something that's right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so what do you think about technology with respect to climate change and sustainability? I think that we shouldn't count on technology to solve the problems. Mm. I know technology has very often stepped in to solve problems when there's a looming catastrophe in the world, but ultimately I think it's a, a political problem, which are unfortunately much, much more difficult to solve than, than engineering problems. Engineering problems have a very clear even though there's never necessarily a right and wrong answer, I think there's typically clear objectives. Answers on uh, yeah, there's clear objectives, and and you know which way you want to be going, and it's it's much easier to make a case for what is the right way and the wrong mm. way. Yeah, I, I think it's just much easier to to agree to disagree on engineering arguments. I mean that happens a lot, but you know a lot of times I think you're choosing between two good choices, whereas political decisions often feel like you're choosing among the least bad of many bad choices and you know bad choices hurt a lot more than than good things right it, like it, it hurts me more to spend five bucks than the joy i get from finding five bucks on the ground and and so i think that's part of what makes political decisions very difficult and you know i, I hope we can all work together to find something tenable for the future um my parents live in in delaware only a few feet above sea level so they've told me, you know, don't count on much of an inheritance. Either it'll be sea level or subsea level. <laughs> and it's, and I'll say yeah. they're not, they're not exactly living on like oceanfront property. They're middle of the state. It's, it's, you know, it's just a very flat state. And that's, that's really scary looking into the future about like, you know, I was saying before that engineering is gonna be a very different place in 10 to 20 years. And, you know, the world could also be a very different place in 10 to 20 years. And I'm hoping it's for the better. I'm hoping it's not for the worse, because then I'll feel kind of like, well, what was I doing spending my life on space exploration when <laughs> maybe I should have been spending it on solving climate crisis or insufficient drinking water or carbon capture? You know, there's there's all these amazing problems that that could use more thought and more solutions. And I will say there are times where I'm like, you know, what am I doing? Just like chucking stuff out in the space. But I, I will say one thing I do like is is everything I work on, I, I do try and find ways for it to be useful for terrestrial applications. I'm I'm really excited about looking at, you know, better ways of, of stabilizing the grid for the electrification of vehicles. I think that's a really exciting future. I cannot wait for the day for self-driving cars. I like driving recreationally, like going out into, into the middle of nowhere and just like driving or, you know, being out in nature driving, like that's wonderful, but like day-to-day -day driving in, in cities and stuff. And I, I think that's one of the biggest wastes of like human capital there is. The amount of like mental power that goes into just driving on the freeway every day, it seems like such a waste uh, when, you know, people could be using their minds for other things. Like if you want to sit in your car and like whittle to make cool figurines or something, that is so much a better use of your time 
than sitting there like sweating bullets over the three miles an hour you're going, hoping nobody cuts you off or, you know, rear ends you today. Like what unneeded stress that we all have, which again, you know, complaining about sitting in traffic is in the scheme of things, maybe not the worst thing in the world, but that, that hits close to home for me. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what I find about JPL is that the, the celestial body that they study the most is actually the earth, right? And with NISA and a bunch of satellites, it's all about understanding the problems of climate change and being able to predict the weather patterns that affect natural disasters and, and crop yield, right? So yeah. I think JPL also is the place to do that side of solving problems for the world as well as space. And the fact is that they're actually very well intertwined. Um, yeah. If, you know, if, if we want to understand, you know, where do we think we'll find life elsewhere in the solar system or the universe, we, we really only have one place we found it so far. So the earth is a really good place to study it, to understand. Mm -hmm. And, and I was talking about the undersea vents earlier, right? Yeah. Part of why they're so exciting to NASA is that they're a really alien environment. You know, you don't need sunlight. You know, we used to think that, oh, everything relies on the sun for life. Oh, no, wait, there's, there's life at the bottom of the oceans. There's life at, at these undersea lakes. There's life by these volcanic vents that have never seen light. And there's a good chance these volcanic vents will exist elsewhere in the solar system or universe because, you know, the idea of a tectonically active or geologically active planet is not, we're pretty sure that's going to be consistent elsewhere. I mean, we see... We even see like geologically active ices where on like Europa, I don't remember if we currently think that it is active or not active, but at least at one point, you know, we have continental plates. Well, they, they had ice plates and those would move around and smash into each other. And when they smash into each other, you get a huge amount of friction, which creates heat. And so you're going to have these spots where you're on, you have this ocean underneath the ice, which is liquid water. So it's, pretty close to the freezing point of water, no matter what pressure you're at. And then you have friction generating a little bit of extra heat and grinding up all these extra minerals and deposits of, of things. And it's like, that's kind of like an undersea vent area, except flipped upside down and in an outer gas giant planet. But there's, you know, there's no sun to give life to, to you know, as we would think to give life, but that's actually a really cool spot to look. You know, so, so studying earth from that stance is really exciting. If we want to say, oh, well, we want to terraform other planets. Well, understanding how the earth is being terraformed by us in a semi-passive way right now is going to be pretty crucial to terraforming stuff intentionally in the future in 500 years or whenever we get there. And, you know, the earth is just a really exciting, inexpensive place to get to, to study. Um, it's, it's a lot cheaper to go studying lava tubes in Hawaii and honestly, probably more fun than trying to study lava tubes on the moon. Because if it's on the moon, you're just sending your robot for now. If it's on Hawaii, you're getting a pretty fun, well, not a vac you're getting a fun working vacation. I'm, I'm jealous of some of my, some of my friends and, and colleagues who have gotten to go to Australia or Alaska and, oh my gosh, the places that you get to go. If, if you get in the right sort of science, you get to go to some pretty cool places around the world. I'll say that. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, just not what you said about climate change being a very political problem. That's, that's where, that's where science starts to become about sales, right? And the technology that you create becoming about sales. And that's what you told me before that to be good at science is to, you have to be good at sales. So I was wondering if you could make 
the connection more clear. Yeah. 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 So, so the idea that science of sales is, you know, if there's a saying, you know, if, if you do science in a vacuum, you know, if, if no one ever hears about your experiments, did you ever do the experiments? You know, a, a huge part of science is that we stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, we, we learn from our colleagues. We learn from those who came before us. We read papers, we write papers, and we make sure that other people know what we're up to. And if you do stuff and you never let anyone else know, you're not really bettering humanity. You're not adding to the general scientific knowledge. And, you know, let's say you do some really awesome work and you do publish it, but it's horribly written. You know, your figures are impossible to decipher. You know, you you post it on your, you know, it's not published in a journal. It's posted on your blog that has a pay, page rank of 500 in Google. You know, did you really do science? Like, yeah, you published it, but like, you have to be the one to go out there and get your ideas seen by other people. Like nothing stand on its own. Nothing stands on its own just as pure brilliance. You have to convince people that like, no, this is actually a really clever idea. This is, this is novel. This is something worth you spending your mental effort on to understand this and to believe it. And, you know, the idea of like, I'm just going to do my science, I'm going to publish it. And that's going to be that it, it just, it, it's a wonderful concept. And at some level, I wish it was true because it would be a lot easier that, you know, the best ideas would just float to the top and the, the, you know, the, the Dietrich would just kind of float away, but that's not how it is. You know, you have to go out, you have to talk to people, you have to make friends, you have to, you know, sometimes I don't want to say fight with people, but you know, you, you have to stand up for your concepts and, and show why they are the right thing. Why are, why are you worth investing dollars in to continue your research, whether that be for studying fruit flies or jellyfish or for building the best rockets in the world, you know, you need some aspect of sales. And that was something that I really didn't appreciate when I was younger. I always asked myself, like, why do I have to give a book report? I'm never going to give a book report. I'm never going to stand up in front of people and give talks. Like. I'm in an engineering class. I'm taking engineering. Why do I have to give a report on, you know, what dislocation motion is? This is so stupid. I'm never going to be at a company where I'm going to have to do this. And, and that's true. Like, I'm not going to have to give a presentation on that. But what I will have to do is break down these really technical concepts into something that, that anybody can understand. And understanding, like, you know, am I talking to a technical group where they, they know my background? You know, this is a whole know your audience. With technical group, I can, I can get really in the nitty gritty if I'm doing stuff with, with management, where I'm just trying to convince them to fund me, you know, they don't necessarily care about what my solution is. They care about the problem, you know, convince them that like, there is a problem in the first place. And I, and I think going back to your question on, on global warming, a large part of a, a lot of people don't believe it's a problem. So how could you ever agree on any sort of mitigation or treatment if there's no consensus that there's a problem in the first place? And, you know, you can take what you see at like these macroscopic scales on really hot button political issues. And you can take that same thing and look at like in your small company and the same stuff is going on, except it's on some really nuanced thing of, well, do we want a flip switch or do we want a toggle switch? And it's like, is it, you know, describe why, you know, don't give the merits of why a, 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 a toggle switch is better, right? 
you, you need them to understand that like this is a problem that's worth even thinking about they're like oh if we use the wrong kind of switch that we could wind up you know the machine could wind up in this kind of state which could be a really big problem that could lead to a lawsuit against us for negligence so we really need the extra like two cents per switch because this could be a legit problem you know if, if something goes wrong that's a much more effective thing that i didn't appreciate in, until really only a few years ago that solutions don't you know so solutions are good and great but but recognizing that a problem exists and needs to be solved is really the most important part because what's the point of improving a system that's already fine so does that mean you have to spend more time doing less research and more time finding the right problem to tackle i think it's being one of the best places to get to is where you can feel selective on the problems you tackle. It, it's really important to recognize what are problems you have the right tool set to solve, you know, in terms of where to invest your own time, where, where do you have the right skills? You know, you, you don't want to try and tackle everything. This is a hard lesson I had to learn, which is, you know, you got to pick your battles. You can't fight everything. There are some things you just have to let go. And that goes for just, you know, that's, that's political, that's managerial, and that's technical as well. You know, there's some things where you look at it and you're like, you know, that's not that bad. It's not perfect, but it's okay. If I spend the same amount of time on this other problem, I can make a really big change in the way we do things. And so that, that's a really important thing to recognize. I think it also helps give you credibility with other people when they realize that you're not going to BS them about what you can do for them. You know, you're not always just going to say yes. You know, some, some people say that, you know, always say yes, always say yes, you can solve it. But, you know, if you can't deliver or if you can't give a credible path to deliver, you know, they'll trust you a couple times, but then eventually they're like, oh yeah, you know, this is just someone who's just going to always, you know, they're going to say yes, they might do something neat, but they're not going to deliver on my problem. And sometimes the best thing to do is just say, yeah, you know, I really don't know what to do for you. That sounds like a rough problem. And sometimes you're lucky and you go, hey, I know someone who can solve that for you. And then you're the hero because you made the connection, you know, and, and you're not trying to just drag your own self into it. You're just really trying to solve the problems. Um, and the other thing I'll say is, is make sure when someone comes to you with a problem, they are asking you the right problem. Because a lot of times people are identifying the wrong problem with their system. And that's really hard sometimes to get people to recognize the right issue. And a lot of times you look like an idiot because you're asking some very simple questions. And sometimes you chase your tail for five or 10 minutes and you realize like you were misunderstanding the question and that, oh, they are asking the right thing. You were just misinterpreting it. But that's still actually very useful time spent because it made sure that you didn't chase after the wrong solution because nothing's worse than like going, yeah, I totally get this. I get this. I got this, you know, I'll solve this for you. You spend two or three weeks solving something. You come back and you're like, that's not what our problem is. And it's like, oh man, but it's a cool solution. And like, yeah, but it's not our problem. So yeah, you know, so make sure you're always working on the right as much as you yeah. can <laughs> try to work on the right stuff. So throughout, throughout my internship, We've talked a lot about problem solving, materials, research, a bunch of different experiences. And just now you said that you, you don't like, you don't like driving when it's a chore, but you do like it when it's <laughs> recreational, right? And you told me about your experience at national parks 
And that's what that's what convinced me to go to two, actually. Sequoia and Kings Canyon. I went with other interns and then I came back and told you about it, interns from our group. So why do you love national parks so much? And well, what does it mean to you? It's, you know, I was actually really surprised the first time I went to like a big national park. I, I, I hadn't been to one until I was pretty old, I guess. I guess the first one I went to was Grand Canyon. And that was actually the summer after my junior year of college. I grew up, my dad, I, I was the fourth boy for my dad. He had gone through the whole camping thing with the other three. And I think none of them, it really stuck with them. So he had given up by the time I rolled around, which was fine. Cause I was, you know, I was, I was a basement nerd. I liked building computers. I didn't like getting dirty. I like being inside all those sorts of hobbies. That's, that's what I did. You know, I love that kind of stuff. And it's just this, when you get out to national parks or these, these natural kind of relatively unspoiled wonders, it it gives you a different sense of the world than what you see day to day. You know, there, there is everyday beauty and everything around you. You know, there's, I, I just had a cute little bunny in my backyard the other day and like that, you know, that's adorable. Like that's the little things that make you smile. Right. But sometimes it's, it's just awesome to be absolutely overwhelmed by something beyond your comprehension. And I think, you know, this happens, you know, you can go to a city and get this experience. You know, you go to, go to Manhattan and you go up to like the top of a skyscraper or something. Right. And that's, that's just, it just blows your mind. It's so different. And, you know, I try to remind myself every time I fly, I try to get a window seat, even though for years I was terrified of flying. I, I would take medicine to knock me out because I was so scared of flying, but I would at least try and have and keep that sense of awe every time we took off that like no human up until the Wright brothers even not even them, you know, it was a lot later. It's like world war one, right? That was when we really started flying above the clouds. Like this was just something that was unheard of for humanity. And, you know, millions of people had gone their entire lives without even dreaming this was possible. And here I am cramped into a, into a sky bus with, you know, 300 poor other souls that are miserable in our tiny ass coach seats. And, and I'm just like looking down on the ground. It's like, this is just so freaking cool. And it, I, I guess a good comparison is, is the, the first episode of Futurama where um, Fry gets in the rocket for the first time and everyone's like, we're just going to the moon. What's the big deal? And he's like, this is going to be the coolest thing ever. I'm so excited. And, you know, a few episodes later, it's like no big deal that he's on a rocket, like gallivanting around the solar system or the universe. And And so, you know, every time I fly, I'll say, I try and like, pull a little bit of that spirit of like, this is so cool and get, ex just love it. And, and I think nat national parks are one of the best ways to get that because it's, I, I just don't know how it's possible and not be completely like awash in that experience and just in complete awe of some of the things you'll see there. They're, they're just so big, so overwhelming, so different than anything else you experience that is just, it's, it's a phenomenal experience and it, it regrounds you. It reminds you life is exciting and there's, there's crazy things out there that like we've never seen, you know, what's on other planets, what's elsewhere on the earth. You know, I haven't traveled a whole lot around the world. Just, you know, there, there's so much exciting things out there and how much, you know, I personally would like to, to retain this for future generations. You know, it's not just, this is not just something that's going to be here for me. 
And then, you know what, let's just mine the crap out of this stuff and level it and, and get rid of it. Like this is a, a treasure that's been left for humanity that we're lucky enough to be here at the right time of the earth's geology to see. And, uh, you know, one of the craziest things for me was I, I went to Arches National Park one time, did a bunch of hikes. It was very cool. I came back two years later and one of the, one of the big arches I saw had collapsed. And I was like, that's devastating. Like no one's ever going to see that again. You know, they, they should have preserved it. You know, they should have, they should have kept it supported. I'm like, you know, but that's part of it is that the beauty of this stuff is fleeting. And that, you know, some of these things are there for a long time. Some of them are, are ephemeral and, and they'll go away and hopefully there'll be new wonders that will develop over time as well. And we'll be lucky to, you know, the people who are around to see those will be lucky to see them. And, uh, you know, it's, I think something everyone should try and savor when you get the chance. That's exactly how I felt when I went to Sequoia and saw those massive trees. Right, like thousands of years old, and I'm very glad that you that you told me to, <laughs> to, to go see that. If you get the chance, man, go to Southern Utah. I'm telling you that that will not yeah. it. And then the other crazy thing is, like, by the way, I will say this is I think 99% Invisible's line. Read the plaques. Read the plaques, man. They're so cool. There's a reason they were there. There's somebody yeah. who's a hyper nerd about whatever that place was. And they have, they could probably talk to you for months about whatever specialty thing is going on in that part of the world. And they chose to try and condense all of that knowledge they have down into like two paragraphs, because we all have such like tiny little pea brains when we're vacationing and there's so much awesome stuff to see. It's like, who wants to read words? I'm on vacation. It's like, no, no, no. Read those words or get like a, an audio tour guide or something because understanding like, oh, you're driving through this imagine like massive nature land and this used to be under the ocean. And you know, the, the North America used to have like a giant ocean inside of it. Like you wouldn't pick that up by just reading it or by just driving across it. Right. Like there's, it gives you the appreciation for the depth of knowledge that everybody else has and the thing they've spent 30, 40, 50 years of their life on. Like there's just so much knowledge out there. And, and to me, I'll say that's one of the other, by the favorite things about going there is, is reading the plaque and just learning this little esoteric factoids that I don't know, just, just make it like kind of like the next level of, of just other than the fact this is really freaking cool. It's understanding like, oh, we, and we actually understand all this stuff because not just, this is like mile tall cliffs. It's like, we know how these happened, why they occurred, where else you find them in the world, you know, all this stuff going on with it. And still what we haven't learned about them is, uh, it's so cool. Yeah. Basically every intern group that I've met at JPL has done Sequoia or Kings Canyon or some sort of national park while they've been here. And I think it's, I think maybe it's because we're all kind of drawn to just epic things, you know? <laughs> Mm -hmm. well, why would we be at JPL? Is that how you kind of see it as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always it's always fun to see the biggest, the coolest, the whateverest yeah. of things. I'll say I also have a soft spot for like not quite necessarily the biggest ball of twine type attractions. But the first time I drove across the country, one of my one of my fondest memories was there was this pyramid. I feel bad because I forget all the details, but there was like the, these these guys built a pyramid 
that was supposed to be right off the Transcontinental Railroad. It's in Wyoming, a little bit past the, the eastern border. And it's, it's literally just, it's a freaking pyramid in the middle of nowhere because the railroad wound up not passing there. They built it and the railroad did not come. So it's just a, and it's, it's a few miles off I-80 and I, I took a detour to go out there. I was the only person there. There were a bunch of like broken beer bottles and stuff, like just littered around the bottom of it. I walked around it. It was a pyramid, but it's just, it's so different and unique. I think that's the other really fun thing to to take advantage of when you go on things. And, you know, I, I think that that's the other thing I actually learned from a lot of interns is that interns find these like little weird things around. I've lived in LA now for 15 years and the, the things that, that everyone finds that I've never even heard of are, just, it's just so cool. The little niche interests that pe that people come up with. I'll say that's the other really fun thing to do when you're living somewhere new. If you're an intern somewhere or spending six months or whatever, find the weird stuff. Like it's so much, it's so neat. One of my friends came out and he's like, yeah, I really, you know, he's out in LA for like three days. Like, yeah, I really want to go to this. Like it's an East Berlin museum. I'm like, why is there an East Berlin museum in, in LA? He's like, I don't know, but it sounds really cool. And like you walk in, it's like, they have like a replica checkpoint, Charlie, and they have all of this, you know, art and clothing and all these things. And I'm like, I never would have thought to look for this sort of thing in Los Angeles. Right. But it was legit. Like it was a really fun experience. You know, maybe it wasn't as awesome as and, and awe-inspiring as the Grand Canyon, but it was pretty awesome. You know, it was it 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 took you to another part of the world for for a few hours. And and I think that you know we we all do enjoy like the great things, but I think that great things aren't necessarily just like the big or the huge or the the most technically impressive. Like there's just something great about the small things you know, with the people who just, they have a dedication to something and they build something out of it. And that's just so cool. Yeah. One of my favorite things in LA is the skate park at Venice beach. That was just the coolest thing yeah. ever. There's people just it, flying in the air. <laughs> and doing, like, and, 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 and it's such, it, it's such yeah. a random thing that like this, this is world famous. Like it's a skate park. Like what's the, you know, <laughs> in, in some sense it's like, what's the deal, you know, what's the big deal? But it's like, no, it's like, it's like the skate park, right? Like it is, <laughs> it is a, it is a landmark. And I didn't think I, I went there, you know, I went there and I was like, okay, whatever. It's, I went there. I'm like, no, this is actually really cool. Like there's, there's a <laughs> yeah. totally different vibe there than like other skate parks I've been to. Like it just, it, it feels like you are somewhere but everyone's just yeah. watching it's it's great yeah um, yeah it's fun place so you've given me a lot of words of wisdom over these last couple of months what's your favorite piece of advice someone has given you so it would probably be my my first supervisor at at jpl abdul al jabri he's i've learned a lot from him he was he was a fantastic supervisor or i should say he is he's not dead but he we, we have a different one now who's also phenomenal but I, I talked to Abdullah a lot about like, you know, what is, what is a manager's job and what does it mean to be responsible for projects? And, and he told me, you know, that the, the job of a manager is to enable those that are working for them. And that's something that I see, you know, when I, when I have interns working for me, when I work with other people, when I'm running projects, when I'm coordinating something, you know, even if I'm just having like a contractor over at the house, right. My job is to make sure they can do what they do best with a minimum number of hurdles. You know, it's, it's not to tell them what to do. It's not to tell them how to do it. It's, you know, people get hired to do their thing or they get brought into a team to do something. And 
I want to let them fly. I want them to do the, the best freaking job they can do at what they're good at. And, you know, if, if that means that if part of what they want to do is, is expand their knowledge and learn new things and learn new skills, well, part of my job is getting them the resources to do that. If it's, they just need to work quietly for, for eight hours a day with nobody bothering them. Well, my job is to run interference and answer every freaking question I can so they can sit there and focus on what their job is. You know, it, it, something isn't above me just because I'm, or sorry, something isn't below me just because I'm their manager. You know, it's, you're there to help everyone excel. And, you know, I, I that's actually, I've tried to internalize that in, in as many things that I do or as many things as I can that I do. You know, people are good at different things. People like different things. And that's a, that's wonderful that different people like different things. And, and we should you know, and let people be awesome at the things they're awesome at and, and, and get out of the way and try and minimize the things that they're, they're terrible at that they have to deal with. And I'll, I'll even say, you know, that that's, that's gone to influence a lot of my, my personal political beliefs and, and other things as well as, you know, the idea that we all have to be awesome at everything is, is pretty exhausting. You know, we should try and make systems that, that let us spend our time on what we want, what we like and what we're good at. And, you know, let us all kick butt at the things that we, we're, we want to. And, you know, let, let all the rest of the noise, you know, let's figure out systems and ways of, of getting that out of the way. I won't be more explicit than that. <laughs> yeah, I don't want too political on things, but I, you yeah, know, no, just, let's just, yeah. That's awesome. What are the next steps for you? Well, what do you hope for, for the next fiscal year? Anything you can say? I hope that, I hope that I continue to have really awesome teams and, and great people to work with. Uh, mm -hmm. Cause I, I would, I would get, I, I would be nothing without all of the amazing people I work with every day. I'm not necessarily the person who does the doing. I am a, a, a catalyst. I help people hopefully perform not only to the best of ability, but better than they think they could perform and do things they never thought they could do. And I wanna be able to keep doing that in the future. You know, if that's helping them get new skills, thinking of new inventions or solving new problems or, you know, whatever it takes, that's, that's what I live for. It's just, you know, helping everyone that I work with be, be the absolute best of themselves, best version of themselves that they can be. And it's, it's so rewarding to see people just light up when they actually get empowered to do that. And when they get to share in the excitement of, of discovering something or just, you know, the, the excitement of discovery and, and doing new things and doing what you love is it's the, best. I, I don't have it on this monitor. I, I had, I used to save fortune cookies that I liked and I would tape them to my monitor, you know, cause it's, it's like in movies, right? People put like the, you know, you're valuable or something on the, on the mirror in the morning. I, I would have stuff that, that inspired me. And, and one of my favorite fortune cookies I ever got was to do what you love and, and believe it matters. What could be better? And I'll, I mean, I just said it's not on my monitor anymore. I don't think it's been on my monitor since I was in grad school. I think I lost the the fortune when I was moving. Oh, no. So, <laughs> but, but, you know, I've, I stared at it for six years. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I really internalized yeah. it. And, and, I, and I, I, I try and hope that everyone I work with can feel that way too. Mm -hmm. That, you know, you, lo you love what you're doing and you're hoping that it matters. Yeah. And, and I think that's just such a wonderful feeling. And, you know, you don't have to be making spacecraft to do that. You know, anyone can improve anyone else's day. Yeah. You know, this is a team player, Scott. 
<laughs> yeah, this is this is this is when you're the hero now. <laughs> well, well, let me just say, for, you know, if anyone's still sticking around, I used to be really, you know, misanthropic and I hated working with people, and I was, you know, I I always worked alone. I lived that way for a really long time, and you know, there are times where that's valuable, but there there's just something totally different, differently rewarding about being part of a team and getting other people to just seeing them smile and, and just light up the way that, you know, maybe they haven't before because they just didn't feel appreciated at their job or, you know, they, they just haven't had this opportunity before. And I, and I hope that when, you know, Zen people like you look back 10, 20 years from now, you know, I, I had a couple teachers when I was younger who inspired me and, and I think helped mold me who I am today. And I, I personally try and be that to as many young people as I can, because I think it's important to find someone that way that, that, you know, really encourages you to be the best you that you can be. And I don't know, I try to be the best me I can be. I don't know if I always am, uh, you know, if I get other people to do it, then it doesn't really matter as long as I am right. Just if I can affect positive change on the world, that's, that's the best I can ask for. Yeah, that's awesome. So where can people find your work and reach out to you, Scott? So you, you can find my, I have a, a, you know, LinkedIn and anything like that, feel free to send me an invite and say, Hey, you, you heard me talking with, with Zen, you know, or if, if you want yeah. to message me on there, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to chat with people. I have a JPL webpage. The easiest way to find me is just Google JPL Scott Roberts. I'm also a founder of metallic glass consulting with one of my colleagues. If you're wondering how do you get into consulting? It's you basically get tired of giving away advice for free. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're like, wait a second, this is really specialized knowledge. And I spent a decade learning all this stuff. And I just spent five hours giving this company that makes like $50 billion a year advice for free. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I want there's a little bit of that action that. too. Yeah. yeah. There's a business case for that. Um, so yeah, the, yeah I, I do you have, have to go model. through JPL ethics though. First. Yeah. I, I go through JPL ethics first and, you know, there's a whole yeah. bunch of other things, but, but, you know, a lot of times people ask like, you know, how, how do you get into consulting? And, and that is one way is just people value your opinion. And mm -hmm. eventually you say, you know what? I want to be paid for my opinion. <laughs> and because, uh, because a lot of times the, I'll say one of the most frustrating things is when people ask your opinion and you spend a lot of work to get it to them, a really well-informed one, and then they ignore it. Um, that's the other reason why I got in consulting. It's like, well, I only want to deal with people who are actually willing to, you know, put a little bit of their own interest in the game. I'm tired mm. of people getting it for free and then ignoring me, at least pay me if you're going to ignore me. <laughs> <laughs> so at least I have a little, yeah, there's a little yeah. bit at the end that, oh, okay. This paid for my vacation to, to Zion. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Hey, thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate your yeah. time. No. This was really fun. Thanks for all your work this summer, by the way. It's been, it's been great working with you. And, you know, I hope you also get the chance to pay it forward to a half dozen interns every summer as well. When, when you get in that position, it's, it's a really cool place to be. Yeah. One day, I think. One day. Yes.